Today I'm reading from the Message Bible. The first passage is from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 to 28. The heading of this section is Addicted to Alien Gods. A long time ago, you broke out of the harness. You shook off all restraints. You said, I will not serve, and off you went, visiting every sex and religion shrine on the way like a common whore. You were a select vine when I planted you from completely reliable stock. And look how you've turned out, a tangle of rancid growth, a poor excuse for a vine. Scrub, using the strongest soaps. Scour your skin raw. The sin grease won't come out. I can't even stand to look at you. God's decree, the master's decree. How dare you tell me I'm not stained by sin. I've never chased after the Baal sex gods. Well, look at the tracks you've left behind in the valley. How do you account for what is written in the desert dust? Tracks of a camel in heat running this way and that. Tracks of a wild donkey in rut. Sniffing the wind for the slightest scent of sex, who could possibly corral her? On the, on the hunt for sex, sex and more sex. Insatiable, indiscriminate, promiscuous. Slow down, take a deep breath. What's the hurry? Why wear yourself out? Just what are you after anyway? But you say, I can't help it. I'm addicted to alien gods. I can't quit. Just as a thief is chagrined, but only when caught, so the people of Israel are chagrined, caught along with their kings and princes, their priests and their prophets. They walk up to a tree and say, my father, they pick up a stone and say, my mother, you bore me. All I ever see of them is their backsides. They never look me in the face. But when things go badly, they don't hesitate to come running, calling out, get a move on, save us. Why not go to your handcrafted gods you're so fond of? Rouse them. Let them save you from your bad times. You've got more gods, Judah, than you know what to do with. The second reading is from Galatians chapter 5, 13 to 18. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness, these two ways of life are contrary to each other, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way, according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape their erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? Good morning. I feel like I don't have to sleep. I feel like that was enough, eh? <laughs> Those two passages. Man. 
So I could quit whenever I want. I could quit whenever I want. You know that's a problem when you hear that from someone, right? When they say, I could quit whenever I want. And this was how it was for me with smoking. When I was in high school in grade 9, I started to smoke, you know, to be cool and all that, whatever, the stuff that motivates you to start smoking. And throughout my high school years, I've tried many times to quit. And, you know, being in the church as, and in a more conservative church, smoking was considered this taboo sin, only, only punks and, you know, uh, bad people did things like that. And so I felt this pressure to quit smoking. And I tried time after time, trying to quit, trying to quit, and I couldn't. I remember this one time. I was trying to quit, and I was walking down Eglinton Avenue. I still remember. I'm walking down Eglinton by Allen, um, and I'm walking, and I said to myself, oh, man, I wish I could just have a cigarette. And out of nowhere, a cigarette fell on, it was like rolling right in front of me. (laughs) And I'm like, this is, you know, Satan's tempting me. So I shouldn't smoke, but I did (laughs) I picked it up and I smoked it. And you know, when I was thinking about that story and wanted to tell it, I'm like, did that really happen? Like, because it's crazy, right? It's a crazy story. And I'm thinking, did I dream that? But I'm pretty sure it happened. Like, it, it happened in real life. And, um, and I gave in. And I love smoking. You know, the joy of opening up a new cigarette pack, making sure you pack it down, the, the cigarette, so that there isn't any gaps. And after a nice meal, especially, and you have that cigarette, oh, the feeling you get in your lungs from that first puff of Marlboro Reds. It was my favorite, Mar- Marlboro Reds. And it feels so good. The way the smoke fills your lungs, when what, what felt so empty inside is now filled with this magical puff of smoke that's filled with nicotine tar and all that goodness. I love that, the way you light it, the way you hold it in your hands, the way you could blow uh, donuts and O's. And this is what happens when someone is addicted. It's something that's so controlling, and you have this love-hate relationship with it, where in one day, in one moment, you, you hate it, and you wish it, you, it didn't have that power and control over you. And at other times, you love the comfort and the satisfaction it brings, although it's fleeting and deadly. So we see this picture of Jeremiah comparing the nation of Israel and their idolatry to that of someone who is addicted. They cry out saying, I can't help it. I can't stop. I'm I'm addicted. And here we see Jeremiah make a comparison of their idol worship to that of a a common whore and a donkey and he, like, when you heard it, like, read, didn't it just, like, make you cringe even hearing that? But this is, it's not me. It's coming from the Bible. It's Jeremiah who's saying this. And if I'm being honest, it's, it's very uncomfortable yet powerful. It's a powerful image of Jeremiah that paints the way that Israel was acting against their God. You mean to worship other God is like an unfaithful spouse or, or a common whore? Again, it just even sounds bad saying it. Going around, just sleeping uh, around with other people. You mean to worship other gods is like a donkey in heat? 
who doesn't even need to get wooed, but is just drawn by, by other gods, willingly giving themselves to them. But why does Jeremiah use such an imagery? Baal worship was a common and constant temptation for the people of Israel. Throughout their history, they would uh, go back and forth worshiping Baal and not worshiping Baal. And Baal was a a Canaanite storm god. He was the bringer of rain. So many believed that Baal sustained the fertility of the crops, animals, and his people. And so their followers would often have sexual acts performed at the temple as a way to boost Baal's sexual prowess and thus contribute to his work in increasing fertility on earth. So it's no wonder that Jeremiah uses the imagery of sex because the people of Israel had turned to Baal worship to the point that Israel uh, and Baal worship became synonymous. It, It became part of their national religion under King Ahab. And listen to what Israel says about their idol worship. And just so you're aware, like the passage I chose that was read by Karen is the message translation. And I I chose it because the NIV, I feel like, was too soft and didn't get at what um, Jeremiah was trying to say. But this is what the NIV says, verse 25. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. Or as it was read, I can't help it. I'm addicted to alien gods. I can't quit. I can't help it. I'm addicted. I can't live without it. And I I understand this feeling because that's exactly how I felt about smoking. I tried everything and anything to quit, but I was in love with it. I I could not stop. And at times, I didn't want to stop. I must go after it. See, at least with smoking, you could argue, you know what? There's nothing good about smoking. Maybe except, you know, you look pretty cool, right? But besides that, besides that, <laughs> there's nothing good about smoking. Not only does it cause lung cancer in you, but also in others, right? From secondhand smoking. It not only damages you, but it damages people around you. And for what? Just to look cool? But, at least, yeah, you can, you can say that about smoking, that it's not good for you. But I could see how worshiping foreign gods through sex was something that was even more tempting because, well, sex is good. Sex is not evil, but it's something that, has, that God has given us to enjoy. God created sex, so sex is good. I don't know about you, but do you feel a little apprehensive that I'm even talking about sex? Like, why has sex, something that God has created in the church, has, this is such a taboo topic, and we just feel a little like, oh, he's talking about sex. That's not good, right? But it's something so good that's been tainted, that's become so bad in, in many ways. And I think it's because it's so good, right, that it has such power and such potential of it being bad. The Israelites were tired of being restricted in their worship of Yahweh and were seduced and enticed into worshiping Baal. And we don't have to go that far to see that sex sells. 
Sex sells all the time in our culture. So imagine a religion that incorporated sex as a form of worshiping God. Whenever you read about the high places in the Bible, and it has references to Baal, it is because it's in those places where people would go to worship Baal, and they would have sex with prostitutes as a way, or, or temple, temple prostitutes as a way to worship God. And you can see why God was so upset, because the kings of Israel incorporated this Baal worship into their worship of Yahweh. Imagine a church like that in our society. That church would do well. The church of Tinder, online porn, and one-night stands. Sex has become a a free-for-all because, well, why not, right? We're free, grown adults with desires and wants, and as long as it's consensual, everything and anything goes. There was a saying that was reflecting this kind of worldview 2,000 years ago. It's nothing new. It's not like, uh, what is the saying? Uh, Vegas saying. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not something that Vegas created. It's something that's been around for 2,000 years. So there was a saying, something like this. The food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And because the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for the food, in the same way, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. And listen to what Paul says to this kind of reasoning. So he's saying, you know, yeah, we're human beings with desires and wants, and you're free to do whatever you want, right, as long as it's it's consensual. And this is what Paul says. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The body is not for sex or food, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. We have been made for God and not for our own desires or cravings, We are more than just the quenching of our next thirst, living to satisfy our desires or to be mastered by anything or anyone but our Lord. This means that we are not defined by our desires or even our sexual orientation. I know right now personal pronouns are important, and I get that, but we are not defined by our gender identity. It plays a significant role in who we are, but it's not the core of who we are. At our core, we are God's beloved children. We are made for God. Not just spiritually, not just with our minds, but with our bodies, even our bodies with all its desires and wants is made for God. Let me shift this conversation back to Jeremiah and idol worship. And a few verses before our passage, God says this through Jeremiah. He says, has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they're not gods at all? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah says, 
Has any other nation have ever changed their gods when they're not even real? But God's people have exchanged their God for worthless idols. They have traded in the spring of living water with their own jars that hold stale water that leaks. This is why the heavens are appalled and just shudder with great horror. God's people are exchanging the source of all life with things that don't matter. They're worshiping worthless idols that makes them worthless. They're seeking after things that won't last, that are temporal, that ultimately leads to death. The people of Israel said to themselves, well, they want to be free, to live life their own way, choose their own path, choose gods that will fit their own desires and passions. Paul writes in Galatians again, the result of a life lived in this way in Galatians 5, he says, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gauze, magic show religion with uh, some of our favorite, um, uh, oh man, you know, our smoke, smoke, uh, smoke uh, screen machines and dazzling lights, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. It is interesting how when people try to live in their freedom, they live as unfreed people. In their freedom to do whatever they want, they become enslaved to the things, to the people, to the gods. These things that enslave, destroy, and makes them less than who God has made them to be. And this makes complete sense to me. God has made us to be in relationship with him and for our bodies to be for him. So when we replace that desire, that, that created need for God with anything else in creation, it will ultimately fail and it will ultimately enslave us because then we won't want to be there, right? It causes us to seek out God in our own desire to be free which to me is, is great. That's a good God. A bad God would give you good things from seeking out bad things, right? Though junk food may quench our desire for sugar, for that quick fix, it damages our bodies, and we know that. And it's, we know that when we eat good food, healthy food, you know, vegetables, we try to encourage our kids to, to eat that because we know it's good for our bodies. And again, we know junk food can kill, but even the good stuff can be damaging if we have too much of it. Water, for instance, we know we can't live three or four days without water, but you could also die from drinking too much water. We are made for more than food and water, more than our bodies and desires. We're made for a creator who gives us life, who when we turn our lives to him in submission, we are truly free. 
John Piper, who wrote a book called Hunger for God. And I don't agree with many things about John uh, Piper, but this is one that I do. Um, and, um, and this is what he says about our desire that we have for God. We're all made with a hunger for God that cannot be satisfied by anything else. And when we try to replace that desire with anything other, it unsatisfies us and leaves us uh, seeking and searching for more. And this is what he says about the greatest enemy for our hunger for God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. I think this quote is so profound. We think it's the big stuff that can get to us, right? And at times they do. But for, the mo- but for most of us, our enemy is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the bad things like smoking and drugs, but in the simple pleasures that we trade in God for. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called uh, Screwtape Letters, and where he writes from the perspective of a demon named Screwtape. The, this older demon, Screwtape, wants to train his mentor his, his, or mentee, this junior demon nephew, on how to best trick humans into and luring them into hell. And listen to what he says. He says, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, Underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, screw tape. If playing cards is what will do the trick, use that instead of something like murder. The enemy wants, to, wants us to slowly succumb to our vices, where it's the good stuff that gets us, not poison. It's the innocent delights in food, drink, love, sex, the things that are made to be good, that were given to us by God, when, when that becomes our everything, that leads us to death. It's not murder we need to worry about. It's death by chocolate. That's the only time I'm ever going to use that death by chocolate. But <laughs> I call it death by chocolate, and I didn't use it anywhere else. And then I'm like, I got to put it in somewhere, right? <laughs> so it's there. Okay. So it was the summer before going to Tyndale. I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And I felt like, you know, obviously going to a Bible college is, is the step you take, right, of, of becoming a pastor. And yet, even that summer, I was still smoking. I was struggling with smoking my whole high school life and, and even into that by then, my young adult years. And I remember that summer, I felt really called by God to go and fast. So I went fasting for uh, to this retreat center. And I remember my friend was driving me there. I don't know if you're addicted to anything, but even to the last moment when I'm getting dropped off, you know, I'm having my last cigarette to the last bit, and, you know, I'm coming into the driveway. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> right? So, um, so I went, and I learned so much about myself at that trip uh, and that experience. And I went kind of with, with an air of arrogance, 
You know, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and fast. You know, I'm, I'm becoming a pastor. You know, I need to be holy. And, you know, and if I could quit smoking, that would be great. But, like, this is like, you know, this holy act I'm doing, right? And when I got there, what I realized was that, oh, my goodness, I'm like, I'm such a loser. I'm so weak. Like, the very first day, I was just dying from hunger, right? Like, cause you, it's, the pain you feel in, in, in that hunger is pretty crazy. By day two and three, you're, you're just like, Smoking, I don't even know what's, I don't care about smoking. I'm just thinking about food the whole time. And I learned so much about myself and even just the arrogance that I thought I could, you know, I don't need others, me and God and this like spiritual retreat and and that I'm going to be all good. And I realized very quickly, I miss people. I miss my friends. I just want to talk to somebody. I can't keep praying, right? There's so much you could could only do uh, of, of praying. I just feel like I need people. And through that experience, you know, nothing really special happened, anything spectacular happened. But I learned that this, that it's through that experience, first, that how much I needed people, how much I needed God, and how weak I was in many ways. And through that experience, I learned that really it's not about me and what I'm capable of doing. It's not because I could, I have the willpower to quit that I could quit. Right? I can't. That's the whole thing. I can't quit on my own. Uh, got back, you know, after uh, seven days, my first meal was the greatest meal of all time. And it was just like plain congee. Um, and I never l- loved congee as much as that first bite. And then, uh, thanks be to God, I, I've, I've never smoked since. But if I was able to quit on my own, in, in my own willpower, I know that I would have felt more you know, arrogant. Like, you know, obviously you play it down, right? You know, like you don't go around like, look at me, I'm such a holy person. But it, you'd be more like, yeah, you know, yeah, I know it's hard, but, you know, I was able to do it with God's help. But really, it was just my willpower, you know, I was able to quit. But for me, I truly believe, I, I can't ever say it was because of any kind of willpower or the ability that I had that I was able to quit. I quit literally because I just didn't, I was so hungry that I never cared to eat. And I guess the seven days was long enough to flush it out. And after that, I just didn't have that appetite in me. I think just because of that time of fasting, I gave space for God to change me, to work in me, and he did. And this is the real reason why we fast. We don't fast or abstain from things because it's good for us, although fasting can be good for us. We fast or say no to things or to people as a way to say yes to God. One author and pastor, Scott McKnight, writes that the biblical emphasis of fasting is this. Fasting is a response by which we identify or side with God rather than a means or an instrument to make us better. <clears throat> Fasting isn't a way to make us better. Recently, there's been this movement and trend towards intermittent fasting. Has anyone ever tried it? Yeah, I've tried it, right? Or, or even dopamine fasting. That's, that's this new thing. But these are motivated and done as a way to really improve ourselves. Biblical fasting isn't about self-improvement. Rather, biblical fasting is a way to identify and side with God. It is a way of aligning ourselves and our bodies with with God who created us to desire Him. 
It is a way of creating room for him and turning our bodies over to him so that he can unclutter our desires and affections. C.S. Lewis says that fasting is good and that it can help us and help us help our bodies submit to God, but it can also be negative, a way to feed our own pride. If it becomes a way to be proud about our own abilities, then it becomes another stumbling block to submission. Christianity is not about willpower. It's about surrender. It's about letting the Spirit of God change us and reside in us so that as we walk with Him, we may live in step with the Spirit of God. And listen to what Paul says for those who walk by the Spirit. But what happens when we live God's way? Not our way, but God's way. He brings gifts into our lives. Much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. In Christ, we are free. We are free from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of religion, free from living to please ourselves or others. We are free, not so that we can live any way we want, but rather we are free to love God and others. This freedom comes not in trying our best, not in following a set of rules, nor does it come through fasting. It comes as we surrender ourselves to Jesus, to invite him into our lives and letting him change us into his likeness. We fast not because we have to, but because through fasting, we acknowledge that our bodily hunger for food, pleasure, companionship, love, all point to our ultimate hunger for God. I can stop if I want to. What is the thing in your life that you say that about? Or what is the thing in your life that you say, I can't imagine living without? Like, I just had a conversation this morning about coffee, right? Don't you ever say that? Like, I can't, I can't function without coffee. But actually, you can. You can, right? That's a lie, right? You can actually function without coffee, but we say that. Maybe those things are the very things that God may want you to surrender to him. Not because they are bad, but every time you have a hunger for something, whether it's food, whether it's, uh, you know, a nice cup of coffee, those are moments when we can say, oh yeah, we also have a hunger for God. That God has made our bodies and our desires to ultimately hunger after him. And for times and moments, maybe you do need to fast from those things so that God can work in you. I'm not saying, though, that, or nor am I advocating that if you have a, a serious substance abuse or addiction, that you shouldn't seek professional help. I wish I knew that that was, that was something that I could also have sought out. And I encourage you to do so if you do. One of the amazing things about God, our God, is that he is the one who will change us and not us. He will put in us a new heart with new desires, 
where following him will not be burdensome, but rather it would be a freedom to enjoy him and his creation in the right order. And let me end with what God says through Jeremiah later on in the book. This is the brand new covenant that I will make with Israel and you when the time comes. I will put my law within them, write it on their hearts, and be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer go around setting up schools to teach each other about God. They'll just know me firsthand. The dull and the bright, the smart and the slow, the strong and the weak, anyone who says, I need you, God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us pleasure, that you have given us the ability to delight, to find joy, to find love, to find happiness, that all those come from you. And so we thank you for those gifts. And we thank you that you actually delight in us, that you delight in our, uh, just, just in who we are, that we are your beloved sons and daughters. At the same time, Lord, we know that we are so easily swayed, that we are weak, that we seek after things more than we know is good for us. And so, Father, we acknowledge that, that we are weak, that we can't do it on our own, and we need your Spirit to be with us, that we need your Son to, to come and, and uh, change us. So, Lord, though we know it's painful to, to offer those things up to you at times, that it's painful to stop. Lord, put in us a, a renewed heart and desires to follow after you more. And whenever we desire for other things, that may that be a reminder of our ultimate need and desire for you. And to trust that as we surrender to you, that you free us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.